Hello, Ars Technica listeners. This is the latest serialization of an episode of the After On podcast here at Ars. We're splitting this one into three segments starting today, and I'll be talking to UCSF neuroscientist Adam Ghazali about brain plasticity and the scientific potential of video games to treat and perhaps one day even cure neurological afflictions like dementia, autism, and ADHD. This is the second episode I ever created for my podcast, which makes it a bit more than a year old, and I'm still something of a novice interviewer in it. Quite a bit has happened in Adam's world since we recorded it, and I'll give you a quick rundown on some of the exciting news connected to his work at the end of our second installment tomorrow. Before we get started, a quick note. Throughout October, Medium.com is running a series of essays that I've written on the subject of existential risk, which is to say the grim yet perversely fascinating possibility that our technological creations might just annihilate us. Although I'm, of course, biased, I do think I have a novel take on all this and present some arguments and analytic lenses that are new to the discussion about existential risk. If this might interest you, please go to medium.com slash at Rob Reed. That's medium.com, then a slash, followed by the at symbol, followed by Rob Reed, and Reed is R-E-I-D. There's also a link on the webpage that's hosting this audio player. The first article in the series went up last week. The second should go up sometime this week, maybe even already, and there will be a total of four by the end of the month. I should note that Medium is running this in their editorially curated, paid, members-only section. The good news is they give everyone access to three free articles per month with essentially zero friction. And since it's still quite early in October, there are good odds that you have not yet exhausted your allocation, so you should be able to get this article, these articles, hopefully they're both up there by now, quite simply. Anyway, on to my conversation with Adam Ghazali. Adam Ghazali, thank you so much for um, inviting me into this gorgeous lab of yours at UCSF. Thank you. I'm excited to have a conversation with you. And uh, before we talk about all the amazing things that are going on here, why don't we talk a little bit about your background, um, what your, where you, you were born, where you grew up, what brought you down this educational path that has led here? Sure. So I uh, grew up in New York City, did all my training on the East Coast. Which borough? I have occupied four of the boroughs. Whoa. Which borough did you not occupy? Staten, Staten Island? Island? How did I guess? Staten Island. Okay. All but Staten Island. Born in Brooklyn, grew up in Queens, went to high school in the Bronx, and then spent my adult years in Manhattan. And that's where I went to med school and did my uh, PhD training. Well, you got to go back to Staten Island one of these days. Yeah. yeah. Close, close all five. Exactly. Exactly. And then, so undergrad was New York? Undergrad was upstate New York. It was upstate. And then um, med school uh, and grad school in neuroscience, uh, my PhD was at uh, Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went to Philly. I went to Penn for my training, my residency training uh, in neurology. From there to the West Coast, they figured I'd try out uh, what, what was going on out here and went to Berkeley for three years to learn cognitive neuroscience methodology, brain imaging, brain stimulation, those type of tools. And Wound up staying here and been here for 15 years now. Now, did you then come here to UCSF as a postdoc initially, or was that post-postdoc? Was that as an associate yeah, professor? Yeah, so I did my postdoc at UC Berkeley, and when I started at UCSF in 2005, I started as an assistant professor. So I started my, facu- my first faculty position here at UCSF. So now you're 12 years here. 
And um, very big picture, tell us what you focus on. We'll, we'll get into the details in a moment, but just sort of your, your, not even elevator, your revolving door pitch. Yeah, so my focus has evolved a lot over the years. It used to be really dedicated to understanding how the brain works and how it goes wrong in many different conditions, including healthy aging. But now we're almost 100%, when I say we, my, my center here at UCSF called Neuroscape, our team is uh, pretty much 100% focused on not just understanding the brain, although that's still something that we pay attention to, but how we can build new technology or leverage existing technology to improve brain function. Yep. And this is a rather giant lab, if I'm not mistaken. How, how many full-timers work here? Yeah, we have around 30 full-time people, which is pretty pretty big for an academic yeah, group. Yeah, it's very big. Yeah, we have six faculty. And um, with our volunteer staff, we have a very big internship program. We're around 100 people. So, You're kidding. Yeah. 100 full-time equivalent. Yeah. So we're, we're a big group of people all dedicated to trying to figure out how we could use technology for good to help help our brains. And now what brought you to this? What, what inspired you to, to pursue this particular dimension of the many dimensions of medical science? Well, as a neurologist, I felt a great degree of frustration, as many of us do, with our treatments. We have uh, a whole set of uh, tools that we reach for when someone comes in complaining of the memory problem, an attention problem, depression, anxiety, all the conditions of the mind. And almost all of those tools are small molecules, what we call drugs or pharmaceuticals. Uh, the problem with them is that they are targeted to neurotransmitter systems in the brain, but they're not targeted to the underlying computational unit of the brain, which is the neural network. And so we have to boost our doses to very high levels to get the effects that we want, and then we get just as many side effects as effects. And that's just the world that we live in as physicians. And I was frustrated with that. I figured there has to be a better way of improving how our brains function than relying on these non-specific, non-personalized drugs. Now, this is a real novice question, but I guess I didn't realize this until now. Are you saying that substantially all, or at least the overwhelming majority of drugs that people use for depression, anxiety, et cetera, strictly operate on the neurotransmitter level, and none of them are actually getting into the you know the physical dimension of the brain or the neurons? Yeah, the they, they, they act very, what we, you know, think of almost like as a sledgehammer, blunt. These neurotransmitters, uh, receptors that they target are diffusely located throughout the brain. And so if you want to have a certain effect, you have to really bring on a large, you know, quantity of these molecules, and then you're going to induce other effects that we call side effects. Yeah. And they could be devastating um, and make the drug intolerable. And so that is um, a, a very big challenge and something for 50 years that we've been trying to build better targeted molecular treatments and we've really failed. Now, I applaud the many scientists around the world and many of whom are my colleagues that are working on cures for things like Alzheimer's disease. I want that to happen, obviously. What I felt is that while that pathway is continuing along, we need to think out of the box about what else we can do to help improve brain function. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired in a lot of ways by another very traditional approach, which is the experience. That experience, and by that I mean how we interact in the world around us or even the world within us, drives plasticity of the brain. Mm -hmm. 
the ability of our brain to modify itself at every level, its structure, its chemistry, its function, all in response to how we interact with the world. So you can go beyond merely operating at the neurotransmitters level or the receptor site level and get into the sinews of the brain itself by leveraging neuroplasticity and actually, and, and you do that by way of experiences that people undergo. Yeah, so you know, we, we know that experiences, unlike the drugs we use, activate the brain selectively. They right. activate brain networks. That's the nature of how the brain works, is that when you engage in an environment in a certain way, your brain responds selectively. And so this concept that we can use experiences to change the brain is an old one. It is the entire basis of our education system. It's the entire basis of all forms of therapy that have existed. And so, and it's a completely non-contentious point in neuroscience that experience drives plasticity. So the foundations of the idea are very strong mm -hmm. that you could create an experience and lead to a positive effect. And we know that an experience could lead to a negative effect, right? You could go off overseas uh, in a war and not get shrapnel in your brain, but just witness a tragic moment. And that could detrimentally impact the function of your brain for the rest of your life. We right. call that post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. So if you flip that concept around, then we could create experiences that are powerful enough to lead to improvement and not negative consequences. And so that was the sort of scientific foundation of the idea of not relying on drugs to improve attention and the other uh, cognitive abilities that we study in the lab, but to create experiences. And of course, the challenge with experiences is it's hard to come up with a, an experience that's as standardized as a molecule, an experience that's targeted, that's studyable, that's validatable, that's repeatable, etc. And therefore, you came to video games. <laughs> Somehow I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, you know, you, we've you known really... each other. We've known each other for a while. Exactly. So we go back. But you, you really laid it out beautifully. Um, the, the problems with therapy and that it has had is that some therapists are great and some are not so great. And some are you need a small dose and some you need a bigger dose and um it's the same thing with our educational system teachers yeah. vary and so it is hard and even if they don't vary a particular teacher with a certain set of students is going to deliver a completely unique experience on tuesday versus wednesday even teaching the same lesson even teaching to identical twins of the people who were in the first class you just can't have the standardization of experience that you can have with the standardization of a molecule exactly but a game you're right can and, replicate yeah. and the other thing is that it is a non-personalized experience right so a teacher's speaking to a class and we know that some students are picking up the information rapidly and they're bored now and other kids are struggling and they're just not ever going to get there so the other problem with a lot of the experiences is that they're not really targeted to the individual. They're not personalized. So the idea of a video game was really attractive to me because it can be delivered reproducibly through a game engine. It can be delivered in a personalized way through adaptivity. And we could talk more about that. That's one of our, our key um, features of, of our game development. And it can be delivered in a way that's targeted to a neural system that you want to optimize mm -hmm. by the game mechanics. If it's an attention uh, a system that you're trying to improve, you could create a game environment, an interactive experience that challenges attention and the brain responds selectively. So, And then, of course, there's that other 
feature of games that's hard to ignore is that they're fun. They are fun. And they're engaging and they're immersive. And that is exactly what any training program should be. I have heard that therapy is not necessarily fun. It's not fun. And medicine is often not considered fun, but it could be. And thus video games had that other feature that we are horrible at in our current condition, which is compliance. Mm. That people, even if a drug is life-saving, people do not often take them. That's there's this remarkable statistics. It is that. astounding. It is astounding. It's, but it's, I've I've heard enough statistics from enough sources to certainly, you know, accept the fact yeah. that people when some people when told take that pill and you will not die end up watching Cheers and forget to do it. It happens yeah. all the time. We have a, a very, very serious issue of compliance. And so if we have a experience that's delivered reproducibly, targeted, personalized, that's fun. Right. And not only that, we could monitor compliance remotely. Right. We know when someone's taking their medicine in video game format because their data goes to the cloud to our you know to our lab and we could get notified if they didn't take their dose or if they're trying to take too much of it. Take their dose. I love that. Did you take your dose of the video game today? So let's talk about your first game, Neuroracer. Why did you decide to target distracted attention with your first major creation in this field? Yeah, so, you know, you always work on what you know. Um, And when I came up with this idea of building a video game, uh, the first target that I chose was one that I knew very well, which was distraction. I had been studying distraction, uh, the impact of multitasking on performance for many years. We have neural markers of it. We have expertise in how to engage it. So I come, you know, I came about this from a neuroscience perspective. Mm-hmm. And so those abilities of resisting distraction, of being able to maintain your focus, of holding information in mind, something we call working memory, was the focus of my research for many years. They're also core to everything we do. They form essentially the base of the pyramid upon which all other cognitive abilities rest. This is like having good core muscles or something. It's it's useful in almost any activity. Exactly, it's just if you can pay attention, your language will be affected, your decision-making, your emotional regulation. You know, at every level, you will be impaired and in the real world. And so it's a really great target because it could have broad, positive consequences. Yep. The other reason it's a good target is pretty much every neurological or psychiatric condition that impacts cognition, they have th- those patients have problems with attention, mm. distraction, working memory. It's just pervasive. So again, you could affect many different populations in a positive way if you can improve those abilities. It was a well-studied and well-understood field. It was particularly well-studied and well-understood by you. Mm -hmm. So did that mean you were coming in with sort of, I don't know, like the equivalent of like an IQ test for attention? Was there some scale that you were trying to bring somebody from a three to a seven on? It's a great question. So if you're going to build a game to improve these abilities, half the challenge is building a a good game. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not trivial. We could talk about that. The development process, you you know, you don't just build something and sprinkle some, you know, game dust on it. It's, it's a baked in process from the beginning. And so, so I kind of got ripped off with that game dust I bought online last week. (laughs) Yeah, it just doesn't work. It said just sprinkle it on anything. I know. It becomes fun. Some colors and some rewards and that's it. Yes. A lot of people fell for that I'm sending it back. I'm sending it it back. It doesn't really work. So, so we could talk about game development in a moment, but Mm -hmm. once you have something, my view is that that's not the appropriate time 
to sell it and say it does what you think it should do. Mm-hmm. That's the appropriate time to do a research study. Hey, you got to measure out. this. You got to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just the way it works. You need to validate. And so to validate, you need to have outcome measures that are sensitive and, and appropriate to document that. And so that's where we had a strong suit is because we had been developing tests of attention and working memory as well as the neural markers that go along with those abilities. We meaning the forerunners to this lab. Yeah, yeah, but UCSF. Mm-hmm. And so when we... And these were tests like kind of like flashing light and reaction tests? Yeah, they're, they're tests, for example, a working memory test that we've studied for many years is you sit in front of a computer, you see a face, and we ask you to remember that face. Seven seconds pass and we show you another face, probably similar face, and you have to say, is that the face or not? Mm. And sometimes we distract you during that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we make you multitask when you're doing that. Got it. And we know that older adults, and I mean, and here I'm defining that as older than 60 and healthy, no signs of Alzheimer's disease, they do very poorly Mm. on tests that have distraction and multitasking. Well documented by many labs, including ours in dozens of papers. And so we wanted to improve that ability in older adults. Because they're more vulnerable, the the, the effect is already evident in them. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and also it is impairing their quality of life. Yeah. They feel distracted. They feel like they're having trouble competing in the workforce because of it. And they desperately want to be more focused. So So that's your measure. Tests that test and others like it. Yes. Very, very easy to quantify. You know, did they remember, you know, did they got 53% or did they get 72% of the, yeah. And it's beyond that, it's the speed of response, which is a very um, mm. sensitive indicator of how quickly they could recall these memories, even if they get it right, how right. fast were they able to recall mm-hmm. it. And then there are uh, many other got measures. And, we, and what we do is during these tests, yeah. we record brain activity. Sometimes we do it with functional MRI. Sometimes we do it with EEG, mm. which records electrical uh, metrics of brain activity. And in this particular study, mm-hmm. uh, this game is called NeuroRacer. The outcome measure here, so first of all, we were targeting older adults because, as we said, they're a vulnerable population when it comes to memory and attention, and we felt that it would be a big win to improve it. We recorded their brain activity um, while they were playing NeuroRacer, the game itself, and but also to understand how um, how their attention and memory was improving outside of the game. So that was what's very important about these studies is not just to get better on the game. No, no I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt you, but when, when the, you were watching them play the game, were you in a sense saying, man, if we could get this region to light up brighter, we know we're doing better. And if we could get, or in the EEG, if we could get this particular brainwave to sound a little louder, we know we're doing better. Or was or were you more recording that stuff so as to in, in the future go back and, and sort of get a sense of what you are looking for. We do it after the fact. We go back. So you didn't know yet what you were looking for necessarily. We had a hypothesis. We had an hypothesis. So as, as we get older, the front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, the most evolved part of the human brain, seems to diminish its ability to engage robustly when you're challenging yourself from an attentional point of view. So you might have thought if somebody went into an MRI and there were an older adult who was suffering from these things, that part of the brain would light up less. We have shown that. You have shown that. Okay, Many times. Yeah. Yeah. We even showed it in our video game that when you play the game and you're older, you engage the front part of your brain less. So the mm. question was, would training on the game yep. help you engage the front part of your brain more, have it light right. up more? Mm-hmm. And would that 
lead to improvement outside of the gameplay in other into areas. these other areas like face memory. And so that was the study design that we engaged after the year of game development of building NeuroRacer. Got it. So you were building NeuroRacer based on highly educated guesses about distraction, probably is associated to these things. This is a distraction mechanic that we can have in the game. Yeah. Now let's take this distraction mechanic that we've come up with and try to make it fun. Yeah, we call them hypotheses, right? Yeah. So that, that our hypothesis was that because abilities like multitasking mm -hmm. and sustained attention and working memory all relied on common brain mechanisms that use the prefrontal cortex, that if we could improve one through adaptive gameplay, in this case, multitasking, yeah. we would see improvements in those other abilities that relied on similar mechanisms. That was what our hypothesis behind this experiment was. Now, you also came away from this or perhaps went into it with a focus on a particular theta wave, correct? How did that, was that something that was, a, an area of interest before you started developing NeuroRacer, or was that something that came as a result of NeuroRacer's development? Yeah, so there is a low frequency vibration, essentially, um, of electrical brain activity that's generated from the prefrontal cortex when you are paying attention, when you're trying to resist distraction, when you're holding information on mind. We call that midline frontal theta. That's the name of it. So it's coming from the frontal region of the brain in the midline, and it's theta, which is a low frequency, like six hertz. That burst occurs in everyone's brain if I asked you to focus, if you directed your attention. But it also occurs when you're holding information in mind, when you're doing working memory. It also occurs when you're multitasking. So it was an interesting metric to us because it is common across all these different types of abilities that we call cognitive control. And its association with all the, with this diverse set of abilities was known by others before you started doing this work. That was a Correct. part of the known landscape. That was already known. So you were intrigued by this particular theta. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. Wave, yeah, and was that something then you were you were tracking assiduously when people were playing NeuroRacer? Were you trying to see if midline did I say midline frontal theta? Yep, correct. Uh, whether that went up as while people were playing, or was that something you were tracking throughout? Is this post? Yeah, so we you know we we have people come down to the lab. Our participants, our older participants, come down. We do multiple days of cognitive testing, and we record EEG activity while they're playing NeuroRacer. Then they train for a month. On NeuroRacer. On NeuroRacer, one hour a day, three days a week for four weeks. Mm -hmm. Then they come back, and then we recorded brain activity again and cognitive tests and saw what improved outside of the game and what changed in their brain when they played NeuroRacer. Got it. And you saw essentially more um, frontal midline theta yeah. activity at the end of the month. Than you saw prior. We saw that that activity was reduced in an older adult compared to a 20-year-old on day one, mm -hmm. and afterwards it was indistinguishable from a 20-year-old. And this seems to be, and, and, and correct me if this is an oversimplification, but sort of my metaphorical brain is saying, so in a sense, you kind of created a gym, but instead of working, I don't know, the bicep, it was working this, this frontal midline theta muscle. That muscle strengthened over the course of a month of workouts. And it seems that this muscle is used in a diversity of activities. Um, now that it's been bulked up, in a sense, through this training, that muscle is available not merely when somebody's playing NeuroRacer, but when they're doing a div diversity of things that have to do with working memory, attention, et cetera. Is that approximately a... That, that's our interpretation. That's so, the interpretation. So we see that change occur. We also saw that working memory and sustained attention also improved mm. in these older adults. 
And, and those are things that are associated with frontal midline theta. It, and yeah. we showed that if you do a re, what we call a, a cross-participant regression analysis, which is a fancy way of saying those people that showed the biggest change in their midline frontal theta, mm -hmm. we showed that they were also the people that showed the most improvement on the attention task. So it's correlation and amplitude. So we correlated that, yeah, it. Yeah. And show, so that's how we mechanistically connect what we found in the brain with what we found in improved abilities outside of the game. That's amazing. Now, that's the kind of thing that I would imagine might end up on the cover of a magazine. It, it, and it, it did, didn't it? Did, it? it did. Leading it's, question. It's yeah. sort of we one go of back those, a ways. I know the answer to this. Yeah. So it's it's one of those life highlights because it was a five year study. Um, at one point, there were fifty people on our team involved in data collection. Wow. It took us a year to build this game, working with friends of mine that worked at LucasArts. Yeah. Uh, so a year of development, building NeuroRacer, and then multiple studies, and eventually in September of 2013, it was published as the cover story on, on, in Nature, which you know is as a, as a scientist. It's as good as it gets. It you is know? as good as it gets. Probably the most painful thing is that I probably won't have another cover of Nature in my life. Well, but, maybe uh, you'll be on the cover of Science, which is <laughs> almost possible. as good, right? It's possible. Um, so let's talk a little bit. We've mentioned various tools of your trade. I'd like to just talk in just briefly about, I think it's the big three, but if it's a big four, tell me about the, the fourth or the fifth. Um, but MRI, EEG, and um, tax or TMS. Um, why don't we just talk about them in sequence, like what they do, what they don't do. So MRI is probably something that people are most familiar with. What most folks probably don't know, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that MRI's superpowers, it can get onto a very tiny scale, but its super weakness is that it has a very, has poor time resolution. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, so MRI and EG um, are two tools that we use all the time because they have opposite strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. As you said, MRI uh, has great spatial resolution. You could see, you know, I mean, not compared to a microscope, but in a functioning human brain, you could see data on a very uh, tight uh, spatial scale, onto like, you know, a millimeter. Yep. But what we're seeing functionally is a blood flow response of the brain, which is sluggish. It takes place over seconds, as opposed to brain activity, which takes place over milliseconds. And so, with EEG, we're recording electrical signatures of the brain, not the blood flow. And so we see events as they're occurring in real time. It basically goes through the scalp with no time delay, but it spreads spatially. So you can't see exactly where it's well, coming from. Well, it's occluded by the scalp, Yeah, correct? and it comes yeah. through, but it gets diffused. It's like a filter. Yeah. And so it doesn't change the timing, but it changes your ability to localize where it's coming from. It blurs. It blurs in yeah. space. And so basically we use fMRI to understand where activity is taking place and need you to understand when. So we use them mm. both as tools to give a more comprehensive picture of how the brain works and how it goes wrong and how it is improved by our interventions. They, But they couldn't be used simultaneously, right? Because the MRI, the magnets in the MRI- We, would, we actually do it you can simultaneously. Do it. It's very challenging. They induce artifacts in each other. Um, and they're on such different timescales. People don't get into getting hurled across the room because of the No, magnetic. no, no, no. <laughs> we, we put all sorts of things inside MRI scanners, EEGs. We have joysticks that go inside uh, MRI scanners so you could play video games. That's wild. So people are playing NeuroRacer and other games inside that machine. Now, the EEG, because most people probably don't know this, that is kind of like a like a bathing cap, right, with a bunch of sensors on it? Modern EEGs like we use are um, delivered... Uh, or the data is collected with a cap that looks like a, a bathing cap that has many electrodes. Usually we have 64, sometimes more. 
and um, we have amplifiers at each electrode so we could really have a sensitive detector of what's a very subtle signatures, the electrical metrics that are generated by your by your brain activity. Yeah. And there's essentially four waves or four big picture alpha. Well, there are many, you know, there's a whole frequency spectrum. And yeah. we have drawn in many ways arbitrary lines between them to say alpha, de delta, theta, gamma, those are the ones you hear, and they're just different frequencies along you know, the spectrum. But they obviously come in a diversity of flavors because you focused on midline frontal theta, yeah. uh, or frontal midline theta, which, whichever one it is, whichever. which is different from other forms of theta. Uh, and then finally, there's tax and other transcranial stimulation, yes, um, which is kind of funky stuff. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is, how it works, and how well understood or misunderstood it is right now? Well, well, TMS is used and has been used a long time. Uh, TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation. You could use a very high-powered uh, magnetic field to induce an electrical current inside the brain, which causes neurons to fire. So you're kind of giving it a flick, in a sense. Yes, you're, it's you're thwacking flicking, the brain. Flicking the brain, It's like yes. poking yeah, the if brain. You brain poking feels like a good note to end on, right? So with that cliffhanger, we'll adjourn until tomorrow. If you can't wait to hear the rest of this conversation, or if you'd like to browse my 36 other episodes, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. Either way, you should then see my full archive of episodes in reverse chronological order, with Adam's interview slotted all the way back at August 10th of last year. In case you're interested, the show's current episode is an interview with Martin Rees, who is Great Britain's Astronomer Royal, and yes, that is the coolest title ever. Martin and I talk about the most eerie and violent phenomena in the known universe, specifically gamma ray bursts in the violent department and fast radio bursts in the eerie department. We also spend a great deal of time discussing the existential risks society might face in the 21st century, which is also the topic of that article series I'm posting to Medium this month that I mentioned at the start of this episode. And with that, I hope you join me tomorrow here on ours for part two of this conversation.